did last, actually it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, but last time we were in Matthew uh, chapter 12 and we did verses 1 to 14. I put some of the scriptures together just that the kind of um, to help us remind the kind of the big picture and context of what's been going on. Uh, Jesus with his disciples, Jesus is the Messiah. You know, he's there, he's here, he's, he's been prophesied, he's, he's been anticipated, you know, he's the son of God, he, he's, he's here, he's with us, he's te- teaching us about the kingdom of God, he's healing, he is presenting the kingdom of God. So here he is, but yet there's many who saw weeks and weeks ago who just refuse him. Ah, they don't get it. There's no repentance, there's no change, they don't see it. And even with these um, religious folks, the, 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 the Pharisees, you know, um, who would be equivalent to, you know, the, 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 the theologians, the, the seminary professors of the day, you know, they were the, the, the deep religious thinkers of the day, but yet they still don't see him. And, uh, and, and they wanted to fight over dead customs. They don't want to change. They want to fight over legalism. And they've turned beautiful things like the Sabbath, a day of rest to be with God, into pure legalism. And they attacked Jesus. And we saw some scriptures. And that's basically what we dealt with last week. Or Jesus responded to him, if you'd only know what this means when the Bible says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the innocent. Again, they don't get it. They're condemning Jesus. They're condemning the his, his disciples who are trying to do good and they're not doing anything wrong whatsoever but because of their legalism they want to come down upon them again they're dead customs that's what really you know legalism a lot of times comes from it's things that may have been helpful at one point but has no longer either serves a good purpose or maybe even has serves now is detrimental and that seems to me maybe the case here jesus is like that's not even what God desires. What God desires is what? Mercy and sacrifice. So things like this. And then plus, here's Jesus. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's Jesus, the Messiah. And in everything he's doing and everything he's saying, it's all confirming the fact that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting and longing for for so long. Uh, and so he, in that, we talked about that last time, he fulfills really the function of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is all about stopping our busy, crazy lives and, 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 and removing ourselves from the normal things and turning our faces to the supernatural things in life, like God and fellowship with God. Then we have God amongst us with Jesus himself. So he is that Lord. He's the chief. He's the boss. He's, he's what the Sabbath is all about. And plus, he's just quality, qualitatively greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is limited to know Jesus, especially in the capacity that they had. Imagine walking in and amongst Jesus in Galilee. What an amazing opportunity they had to really get to know God through Jesus. But they missed it. And that really is a sad thing. Um, he, again, verses, important verse we, we, we looked at last time, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus responds, it's lawful to basically do good on the Sabbath. It's, it's always good to do good. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Yes, it's lawful. It's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking here. I didn't put the question mark at the end. But basically, he's implying, yeah, of course it's 
right to do good. It's always right to do good. And we talk a little bit about lawful versus you know, morally good. And sometimes they're not always the same. You know, um, and Jesus here is confronting kind of, again, these, these old customs and legalisms. Um, and then we left with this. Jesus does this, this healing with this man. And he says, stretch out your hand. And so the man, he stretched out his hand and, it, and, and he was healed. Uh, and the Pharisees then went out and plotted how they might kill him. So again, here's the response. Jesus, all this is, is really, and what we're, we've seen so far, what we're going to continue to see is evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. All these miracles are in your face evidences that Jesus is the anointed one that we're waiting for. It, it, it's prophetic. In fact, today we're going to look at some prophecies and how hundreds of years earlier, it was spoken by you know, men of God, prophets, who spoke on behalf of God about Jesus and his role in, in, as a Messiah in his first coming. And of course, some elements of his second coming as well. But he's here. And, and all these evidences are fulfilling. They're, they're confirming the, the, record, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But their response is of jealousy, of wrath, of anger. They refuse to accept the truth. They refuse to accept this Jesus as their Messiah. And they want to kill him. They plot how they might kill him. This hatred is unbelievable. And that's a review of last week. But Jesus has no time for quarreling. Jesus has a mission. He's got a job to do. No time for quarreling. He's going to get to business. He's going to get right to work. And sometimes we need to just, you know what? I'm not going to stop. And fight. I'm just going to go and do what's right. And that's what Jesus did. I'm not going to stop and fight. I'm just going to do what's right. Now, when I did my study, I kind of flip-flopped between the NIV and the New Living. And so I accidentally inserted both. So I labeled it just to let you guys know where we are at the current time. So these verses we'll start with are in the New Living Translation. And it says in Matthew 12, 15, But Jesus knew what they were planning. Of course, this is talking about the Pharisees. They wanted to kill Jesus. They have a deep hatred for Jesus. Why? Because he's doing good? What? No, because, because he's coming against everything that they believe and everything they expect in regards to the Messiah. He's coming against everything that their preconceived ideas or theologies, if you will, all their ideas. They don't like it. He's, he's, he's a threat to their theological or ideological system. And so they want to kill him, and Jesus knows it. So he left the area. And many people followed him, healed all the sick among them. Again, all this is insult to injury. He sees people, he heals them. He sees another sick person, he heals them. So again, all he's doing is just confirming the fact that he is the Messiah that we've been longing and waiting for. And all this is actually potentially going to cause him problems because it's like, if the Pharisees see and hear about this, they're going to get more angry. And, and I've got so, my time's not here yet. He still has a lot more to do in his earthly ministry. And so because of that, he warns the people. Don't reveal who, who the Messiah. Don't reveal the healing, where the healing came from, basically. Just, just keep it quiet. His time for arrest and for, you know, um, the flogging and the, and the crucifixion isn't yet. And he wasn't interested in stopping to quarrel and to fight and debate with these guys yet, as we're going to see in these verses here. He is going to do good. His mission is to go to touch the people, to heal the people, to preach the kingdom of heaven, to preach repentance, to bring the kingdom of God to man. That's what he's doing at this point. That's, that's what's important. And of course, a time will come where he'll need to face his enemies and he will be um, 
persecuted. He will be flogged and tortured and, and ultimately killed uh, on the cross for our sins. That is a part of his, his, his ministry. It's a part of what he is to do. But that time's not yet. So he's going out, touching people's lives and healing people. And this fulfills prophecy. So we have evidences, like the miracles, which shows that he is, it proves that God's with him, his spirit's with him. But now we also have a very important element of his ministry, and that is that it fulfills prophecy. It was told from long ago that these things were going to happen. And so for the next few verses, and I did put the verses so we won't get confused, because I've got a lot of comments in them. So the verse um, 18 um, is the first section of prophecy we're going to look at, where um, it is said, look at my servant whom I have chosen. Uh, and this is, of course, God acknowledging Jesus. Simply as that. Look, my servant, Jesus comes in the name of God, doing the work of God. Okay, simple little, simple little starting point. Look, acknowledge Jesus is, comes on behalf of God, serving God's purpose and will in this world. Then he is my beloved, who pleases me or whom I'm, I'm pleased with. Everything Jesus does is in accord with God's will and his plan for the world. Everything Jesus does pleases. It, he, he, it, it's right. He, he, every, Jesus has a full comprehension, a full understanding of what God wants to do. And he understands it fully as he does his ministry. And he does what is pleasing to God. So when we see him and we see him doing these things like allowing his disciples to eat bits of grain you know, on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath. All these things. All these things are totally right on with God. Because Jesus is completely, and everything he does honors God. He is his beloved and, he, and God is pleased with him. The next one, he puts his spirit upon him. I will put my spirit upon him. God has declared Jesus as the one by putting his spirit upon him. What we see when he heals and when he, all these miracles, what we see is we see God interacting with Jesus and with the people around him. We see God there. That's what it means by his spirits upon him. This thing that, these, these things like healing people and, 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 and removing these evil spirits and all these different things he's doing and the miracles like the walking on the water even and the, and, and the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the five, all these amazing things. This is God's spirit allowing these things to happen. So again, this confirms that Jesus is the one. This is, these are evidences that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah or the Christ. And moving on in verse 18, he will proclaim justice to the nation. So Christ, in his first coming, he, he proclaims justice. Um, he in a sense, he also fulfills some judgment on the cross. On the cross, our sins are, are taken away. Our sins are accounted for. Our sins are, are judged, if you will, if we submit to Christ. So there was some judgment that happened when Jesus first coming on the cross. But he also came to bring justice, to make things right. Again, both Jesus and John the Baptist talked about how the crooked roads need to be straightened, make a right path. This talks about justice. We need to make things right. We, make, we need to clear the rubbish, clear the things that just trip us up, make a clear path so we can get to know God. Allow Jesus to come in. The problem with these Pharisees, the problem with the others we see that refuse Jesus is they, there's too much in the way. And, they, and, and because of their pride, 
They refuse to allow the past to be cleaned so they can see God through Jesus and Jesus who proclaims justice. And not just to one group of people, but to the whole world. He'll proclaim justice to the nations. Next slide. And then continue on in verse 19. It says, he will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. Again, that's not what he's here for. He's not interested in causing public debate. Jesus had a mission. He had a very important mission. He knew fully what God's plan was. He knew what he needed to do. And it did not include debating. <laughs> it did not include you know, sitting and, and shouting and fighting with the Pharisees you know, and, and trying to win his case over. He knew. He was confident. And he went and he did. The Pharisees want to chase him out to hold him back. And if he were to stop to debate him, there's a good chance he would be held back from doing what he really needs to do. So this wasn't his plan. This wasn't a part of his mission at this time. However, when he comes in a second coming, he will be in full public display. So here, he's not shouting in his voice out in public to make his case heard, to be, you know, to, to prove himself right with the Pharisees. Now, he, if you see, and we will see several times, he will answer the Pharisees. He will answer his critics, but he answers them so simply. And he always takes the opportunity to preach the gospel. He always takes the opportunity to reveal the kingdom of God. He, he, he doesn't waste much time. He says what needs to be said, and then he moves on. Um, and then verse 20, the first section says, He will not crush the weakest weed or put out a flickering candle. Um, Jesus, in his first coming, is likened to a gentle and, and, and meek creature like a lamb. A lamb which is prepared for the service of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that it was, for, again, for the atonement of sin. You know, the, the, you know, the required sacrifices. But Jesus, being a perfect lamb, he, gentle, weak, not weak, but meek and gentle, like a lamb. But he, of course, offers himself freely to the cross. Again, for that atoning sacrifice of sin. Our sins. Sins of the world. And I put some verses underneath that line there, which kind of illuminates this rule. In Mark 5, we see what Jesus did before Pilate, how he, when he saw him and he was accused, how he was silent. And it says here, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Again, he wasn't interested in debating and fighting, you know, and going on and on and on. He said simply the truth. You said it. Yeah, you're right. And he left it at that. And then the leading priests, they wanted the debate. <laughs> they kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? The expected human response is, yeah, but no, 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 no. They've got it all wrong. Don't you know the scriptures? Don't you know that I'm the Messiah? Don't you know I'm the Son of God? Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? And, and justification. But Jesus knew that that wasn't necessary. He knew what was necessary was him to be condemned here, basically, to the cross. And he was waiting for that. The truth is, yeah, I am the king of the Jews. But I'm not going to fight. There's no point. There's no need. And so Pilate says, what about these charges that they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. This kind of fits well with what we are seeing in Matthew 12, 20, part A. And also we see glimpses of this, in, again, prophetically speaking, hundreds of years before through the mouth of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. 
again, it's, it's prophetic. You know, God knew how Jesus would respond. And he spoke through prophets hundreds of years beforehand. Jesus knew how he is to be. Jesus knows his own character. He knows the character of the good spotless lamb that he is. And he had no need. There's no place for, for proving himself in full public display. Again, in his second coming, he will come as a mighty king, as described as a lion, lion of the tribe of Judah. And things will be different then. But this time is not that time. This time is a time like a lamb, gentle and meek before the shears, as it says here. Next slide, please. And in the last little section um, in Matthew 12, 20, 20b, um, and like I says here, however, in a second coming, justice will be made victorious. And I like that because that's contained here in Matthew 12, 20, section B. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious. There will be a time where justice will be completed, if you will. Um, and I like this. We've read this before, but I'm going to read it again because it's an amazing, powerful portion of Scripture. It's, it's, this is found in Revelation 5, 1, 8. This is like the first like, heavenly scene in Revelation before God unleashes His divine judgment upon the world, things that are yet to come. But look at the, look at the scene here, and look at the beauty of Jesus contrasted from His first coming, Okay? And it says here, starting in verse 1 of Matthew, or Revelation, rather, Revelation 5, 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seal with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Jesus has triumphed. A part of this lamb process, this gentle meek process of submitting to the cross is a part of the victory. It's a part of, the, of God's plan to crush Satan. Jesus has triumphed through the cross. It seems so unnatural to human thinking and human logic, but it's the submission to the cross. It's the silence before Pilate. It's the not fighting. It's the just doing what God wants him to do and knowing and being confident in doing it. And so it made him triumph all the way to the cross. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is the ultimate authority. Then I saw a lamb. So again, Jesus likened to as a lamb looking as if it has been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus had the authority. He has the, he has the ownership. This is a legal binding document. It can only be, those seals can only be opened by the one who has the authority to open it who has the right to open it, who has the ownership to open it. And Jesus, with authority, with confidence, with boldness, walked right up to God himself, the one on the throne. Give it here. Bam. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So we got a different picture here between the first coming and the second coming. And I think it's awesome to look at those two and compare the two. 
So bottom line, and this is found in Matthew 12, 21, as we continue through. Without Christ, there is no hope for this broken, fallen world. But at his name will the hope of all the world, as it says here in Matthew 12, 21, and his name will be the hope of all the world. The hope, this lamb who submitted to the cross, who, this lamb who submitted to the work, who didn't try to justify every little thing he did, have to answer all the critics and all, there's the Pharisees, and well, what about this, about that? He just went. He did. He served. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. And look at, he lives. Our, our, our Jesus, he lives. He saves. In him is eternal life. Without him, we can't have any other assurance of salvation, of eternal life. He is the Son of God. And he's with us. Think about that. We have, what kind of hope is this? This is great hope. The Bible says where two or more gather, he is there amongst us. He's there with us. He cares for us. He says, carry my yoke with you. I want to be with you. He wants to be with us. This is, there's great hope for our, the world with Jesus because of him, his character, who he is, his name, as it says here. He has given us his spirit. Again, the power of God is amongst us. It's upon us. It's, it's, it's in us. Peace, joy, love, justice, things that philosophers love to talk about and discuss and define, even in Jesus' time. But the thing is, Jesus actually gives real meaning to these terms. They might talk about these concepts. They might talk about what is love? What is these things? What is justice? But Jesus actually gives real meaning to the terms peace. Because with him, in his strength, in his care, in his love for us, in his power, we can actually know real peace and joy, love, and experience love. We know we can experience love, first of all, because he loves us. It says down here, he actually loves us. He really, really does love us. He died for us. And of course, his might. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Next one. And if you want to go on further, hey, Jesus is the exact image of God. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Word of God. He's the Living One, the True Light, the Righteous One. John, he loves to talk about the I am's of Jesus. Maybe we should go through John next just to, just to appreciate this. But he, as he says, I am, that's like a direct claim to divinity. I am. The I am, the self-existent one. And of course, this almost got Jesus in trouble. The Pharisees wanted to chase him about with stones and kill him. But his time wasn't there, so he escaped. He disappeared. But the other I am's of Jesus found through John is he is, or he says, I am the bread of life in John 6.35. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the gate, you know, for the sheep, the way, basically. He's the good shepherd, he is the resurrection and the life. Again, all these concepts I put earlier. Hope. We're talking about hope here. What hope do we have? Well, with Jesus, we've got an, an exhaustive just picture. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a mosaic of hope. It's just there's so much that we can be grateful for in regards to the hope that he has given us. The way, the truth, the life, the true vine. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us the chief cornerstone, the rock, the bridegroom. The church is the bride, and he's our bridegroom. He loves us deeply and dearly. 
He's the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn from the dead. The heir of all things. He's Lord. (laughs) The head of the church. The chief shepherd. The Passover lamb. The deliverer and redeemer. The author and perfecter of salvation. And by the way, I just put a few references. There's a ton of references for each of these the mediator, and of course, the great high priest. And I kind of got bored of writing this list because there's so much. I mean, seriously, there's so much to describe the personality, the character in these titles. There's literally thousands all through the Bible. I mean, hope of the nations, hope of the world, absolutely. But one thing I'll tell you, Jesus is not. He is not the servant of Satan. Or Beelzebub. Now you might think of uh, does God? Of course he's not. We didn't think that. But the reason why I'm saying that is because it's the, the next section. He was accused of being Beelzebub or the servant of Beelzebub, which basically is another name for Satan. It says in Matthew twelve twenty two, then they brought him a demon possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said. Could this be the son of David? Again, another miracle, which is more evidence to prove that, yes, he is the son of David, the Messiah, the one, the promised one, the anointed one. But the anger, the frustration, the jealousy of the Pharisees, they won't see it. They won't have it. It doesn't fit in their system. There must be another reason. Certainly God isn't doing this. It's got to be the enemy. It's got to be Satan. And so when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, which of course, every time I see that, that blows me away. Another, you know, proof that he's the Messiah. Who else knows the thoughts of men but God himself? (laughs) I love it. Jesus, it's like, they're probably in a distance. I hear you, class. I know what you're over there saying. And let me say this. That right there must have, I mean, if I were even thinking something, not even saying it, and then Jesus would have turned to me. And, you know, whoever it is turned to me and said, I know what you're thinking. This is what you're thinking and got it right and answered me. I would be shamed. <laughs> I would be like, whoa, I'm going to change my perspective. I'm going to change my opinion of this person. It's a little things like that, but still the hardness of the heart. It's a dangerous thing, very dangerous thing. So he knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Satan has a, a, a plan to thwart God's will. And of course, we have got God and his will, his plan to bring his kingdom. Okay? And in every city or household divided, and of course, we talked about this before. We've been in this verse, we've seen this verse before. And the word household is kind of a play on word because the word Beelzebub literally means that the, either, either the Greek's kind of, a, or the Hebrew's kind of a funny language, either the, 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 uh, the Lord of flies or even the Lord of the household. So he's saying, you know, But speaking of the household, the Lord of the household, even if it's divided against itself, it it won't survive. It won't stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can the kingdom stand? Now, the word divided, just to kind of bring a a picture to our head of what he's he's talking about here. It's talking about being divided into parties or in factions. So it's it's pitting one side against the other. And, And in order for God to do as well his disciples his the people the his the agents of his kingdom have to be together they have to be on the same page 
And the same thing would go for Satan. If he wants to thwart God, then they need to get together. That's basically what Jesus is saying. They're not going to work against themselves. That would be, that would be totally irresponsible. And this is a response to these stupid comments that the Pharisees are thinking in their heads. And the first response that Jesus makes here is this. It would not make any sense for Satan to work against himself, basically. Everything he does goes against the goodness of God's kingdom. So Satan wants to thwart what God and what Jesus is doing. He doesn't want to let Jesus heal and, you know, and, and go against you know, what he, his desires and his plan and purposes are. The second response Jesus makes is here, it says in, in verse 27, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. In the New Living Translation, I like this, is they will condemn you for what you have said. Basically, a second response to the silly or stupid comments that the, that the Pharisees are making here is that it's assumed that all exorcisms are done by satanic influences. Basically, well, if he's doing it, it has to be because of Satan. And if that's the case, then all other exorcisms are done by people, or whoever, would be done also by satanic influences. And of course, that would make them very unpopular because you know, they have their camp, they're, 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 they're good boys who are driving out you know, you know, evil spirits. And so he's saying, well, those guys are going to come after you if you're, if you're making these dodgy claims, you better be careful. And then the third response, but if I am casting out demons by the spirit of God and the kingdom of God has arrived among you. So third response, what are we seeing here is actually in fact the work of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. No, Satan's not pitting against himself. And by the way, what I'm doing here is legitimate, just like the other exorcisms that you guys are doing. But also number three, what you're actually seeing here is the spirit of God. Do not, and we're going to talk about this more next week. Do not resist the spirit of God. Do not resist the spirit of God. God's speaking here. He's giving, a, he's speaking very clearly and very loudly. Do not resist the spirit of God. What you're seeing here is in fact God re- establishing his kingdom. And then fourth response, for who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Like we saw in Revelation, Jesus is much, much more powerful than Satan. And what we see here, what Jesus is claiming is like, what you're seeing here is, is God establishing his kingdom. He's doing, he, he's sending his spirit upon us and also Jesus, the power of, of the Spirit of God with Jesus, with his disciples, is much more powerful than Satan. Next one. And then we're going to end here. We actually have seen this before several weeks back, but I brought it back just to kind of conclude it and remember, remind us that, again, the idea of, of a kingdom divided is doomed. You know, and what we need to do is get together. And so... That's what Jesus is trying to, to really do. And a lot of his teachings, a lot of what he says is you need to be on board. You need to get with me and get with the program. So here we see in Matthew 20, 12, 25, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. You know, his kingdom followers, disciples, they need to be together. And that includes us, by the way. We need to be united. And that's why we study the word of God. We don't just assume things. We get on board with what God is actually doing. We take we, we, we line up tightly and closely behind God as he leads us and guides us. And then here he says, next verse in Matthew, Matthew 12, 30, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. 
And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. That's, a, that's, a, that's an unpopular statement even then. And it's even more so now. To say, if you're not with Jesus and you're against him. People in our culture don't like that idea. They want to say, hey, no, Jesus is cool, man. He's just cool. He's all right. I'm not, I'm not a follower. I'm not big on him or anything, but I think he's cool. And I'm sure when I go to heaven, he's going to say, I'm all right, too. That's false. That's false. Jesus says, and again, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. This is what Jesus is claiming. He needs to get his kingdom together. We need to be working together. Jesus is the chief. He's the boss. And what he says unites us. So we look at the word of God. We fo- and look at all these prophecies and all these things, all these confirmations in the spirit of God and all the amazing things that's happening in scripture. All of this is in tight accord with, with one another. There's thousands of pages here in our laps. And all of it is in accord. There's no chaos. There's no disharmony. It all works together. And Jesus wants us as a church to work the same way. John 14, 6 says, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to me except through the Father. And again, I'm going to finish up here pretty soon as we're going over. But we talked about the way, the truth, and life. How the way, if he says he's the only way in a pluralistic society that promotes many ways, that's unpopular. That's going to cause people frustration. If, if he claims to be the truth, objective truth in a society like ours that rejects objective truth, we got problems. If he says he's the life in a, again, liberal society that we live in, which lifts up and exalts freedom of choice, and he says, but no, there is no choice. You must come to me to find the way. That's going to cause a lot of problems. We're not going to be hugely popular because of this. Jesus wasn't hugely popular. And he says, a servant's not greater than a master. So we can kind of expect that that's the case. Last slide, please, Gary. And we saw this picture before. I'm going to bring it again. We're going to end with this last slide. Basically, what Jesus is saying here, or what we're seeing here, is that Jesus doesn't fit in our broken society. He didn't fit in his broken society, like the Pharisees, and their, and their, and their assumptions of what Jesus is going to be like, or the Messiah, whatever. You know, and when he came to to make the way straight, to give answers, to establish his kingdom. We need to change. We need to make, we need, we need to change. He's not going to change for us and our society. We need to change for him. Why? Because our society is broken. It needs to be fixed. Jesus had the problem when he was there in the first century Galilee. And we have the same problem here now in the 21st century. His holy kingdom will not bend to our fallen world. It cannot, because then it will no longer be pure and holy. It will no longer be perfect. Our society needs to bend to him and to his ways. We are the ones that need to change. And that's the idea of repentance comes in. Remember, this is the basic message that he and John preached in the beginning. Delivering the message will not make us popular. But it's important. It's, it's a matter of life and death.
Jesus. 